Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for your presence as we gather this morning to worship uh, and then to look to your word. We are mindful that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, God, we don't take for granted this morning that you have promised that as we gather together as the church, that you are here with us. I ask, Father, in these moments uh, that the Spirit of God would move among us, that he would do what only he is capable of doing, that he would illuminate the hearts and minds of your people. Father, for those who may be here this morning and not have a relationship with you, we pray that the Spirit would do the work of wooing them to Christ, that you would convict, Holy Spirit, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. And as we leave this place this morning, may we be a little better prepared uh, to walk out the life that you have blessed us with by grace through faith. And all of this to exalt Jesus Christ and to bring glory to you, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus uh, was approaching uh, the Jordan River and John is baptizing. Uh, and John immediately recognized the one uh, who he is a forerunner for, the one he has long awaited to arrive. And yet he's surprised that when Jesus approaches him, that Jesus is insistent that John also baptize him. Uh, and it's in that conversation that Jesus uh, tells John that the reason for this uh, is because it is the Father's desire uh, that righteousness be completed. And so John baptizes Jesus, and then we pick up from there in chapter 3, uh, verse, thir- uh, I'm sorry, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 1. Scripture says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Christ, on Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's a number of things that we can learn from this account in the life of Jesus. I just want to draw immediately before we jump to James on a number of things. Number one, it was Jesus' passion to do the work of the Father to fulfill the Father's will that caused the Spirit to descend and the Father to announce from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus sets an example that you and I should want to follow, that the Father would be pleased. In fact, most of us are living in such a way that we hope one day when we stand before Him, we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But I also want you to notice that immediately after God expresses his favor, and you would think this would be the opportunity for him to take a vacation, that the father would say, hey, we've got a timeshare. Why don't you go take a break? Because I'm really pleased with you, but that's not what happens. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the purpose for why he was being led into the wilderness follows that, that he would be tempted by the devil. We started last week in the book of James with the idea that life is hard, but God is good. We see the goodness of God in the baptism of Jesus as the Spirit and the Father are involved in His baptism. And He declares to the world that this is His Son who's come to do His will and He's well pleased with Him. And yet Jesus, being fully God and fully man, could not just show up on the scene as God 
and make things happen. He had to, the scriptures say, suffer in every way like you and I have, and yet to do so without sin. And so he is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where the devil is going to tempt him. Just because you are God's child and his favor rests upon you and he is good all the time does not mean that you will not be led by the Spirit into times of testing and trial. That's what we saw last week as we began in the first verses of James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12. We talked about James in this first section of his letter. Uh, He unfolds two trajectories for humanity. And last week we talked about the first trajectory, which is this idea that leads to maturity in life. And if you were here last week, then you'll remember this. If you weren't, uh, I'm going to kind of revisit, recap. I decided to use a ruler this week just to get started. It all goes south from here, though, because I have horrible handwriting. So what, this, what James says to us is that we should count it all joy when we experience trials. Life is hard, but God is good. And the only way we will ever come to know and rely upon the goodness of God is if we understand that the trials in life are intended to accomplish something in us through our faith. And so James says, when we experience trial, we should count it joy because here's what happens. As we employ our faith, then faith leads to obedience. We talked last week about how God has given us the resource of prayer that we might ask for wisdom. That's what he says. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. Because you can't always understand what the trial is about. Uh, but but if, you, if you ask the Father, if you pray to the Father, he will give you wisdom. He will give you insight as to what he's doing. And so as we trust him, it leads to the opportunity to obey him. And then obedience, James says, produces endurance or perseverance. So he's working up towards something. And endurance over the course of time, James says, the end result of endurance is that we might be made mature. That we might grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. That we were to look like him. And so James walks us through this first trajectory. This is what can happen if you and I turn to Christ in the midst of our difficulty. And then ultimately, verse 12 says that when we walk this path faithfully, God will give to us a crown of life. So that's the territory we covered last week. I would like to say that most of us are acquainted with living here. But James writes this first because the truth is, Most of us are acquainted with living here. And the reason why I think this message is more important than last week's message, if that can be said, is because there is much at stake if we do not take God up on the offer to walk with Him. This process of trusting Him in the midst of good times and bad, that leads to obeying Him, that leads to endurance or perseverance, which leads to maturity, which ultimately will have us standing before Him receiving a crown of life. The alternative, James is going to say, is a course that leads to death, and that's where we turn our attention this morning. Not forgetting what we've learned here, that trials are inevitable, but trials can be used in the hand of God to produce this, or trials can be used as testing in the hands of our enemy to lead us toward death, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open to James chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And work through 18. Today we're going to talk about how temptations are always present. 
Like when trial strikes, temptation is there. It could be simply the temptation to want to get out from underneath difficult circumstances. It doesn't necessarily have to be towards something that seems overtly sinful or wrong. Temptation is just to recognize that something bad is happening and we can either turn to God and trust Him to lead us or we can take matters into our own hands. We are adept at taking matters into our own hands. The issue in what James is telling us is about our response, how we're going to respond. What we see in Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and 4 is the example of someone who trusts the Father. And so when trial comes, he just continues to trust the Father. And because of that, he not only obeys the Father's will, but he pleases the Father. Mark Antony was a Roman statesman between 83 uh, to 30 B.C. Uh, he was known for his uh, silver tongue. He was a great orator. He was a supporter of uh, Julius Caesar, and then he became one of three rulers over the empire. He was known not only for his ability to persuade the masses with his tongue, but he was known for his military uh, might and his intellect. And yet one historian writes this about Mark Antony. He was a colossal child, capable of conquering the world, but incapable of resisting a pleasure. Many Christians are supersaturated with education, with biblical knowledge, with inspiring examples from Scripture, with warnings about avoiding moral perils. Yet too many, too many resolve in the midst of trial to trusting themselves and walking away, as it were, from God. They will wreck their career. They will devastate their marriage. They will splinter their family. They'll rip apart a church. Why? Because they don't know how to respond to temptation. They don't know how to respond to what it is that God is hoping to produce in us. And James very much wants us to understand what happens when our faith fails us. Chapter 1, verse 13. <clears throat> Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Very simply, I want to give you three thoughts uh, that kind of unfold out of James' words here. First of all, in the midst of life's trials, the natural inclination of the human heart is to find fault with God and to choose self-reliance. James says, don't think that you can blame God. This usually expresses itself in one of two ways. Number one, when trial strikes, for those who uh, have a relationship with God, we're tempted to doubt God. We're tempted to think that somehow God has uh, not looked our way, that he's closed his eyes or gone to sleep, that he's forgotten about us. We doubt his goodness. Life is hard. Is God good? That's the question. But when we doubt God... It signals a misunderstanding of who God is. James says, let no one say when you're tempted. When the trial starts and it leads you to temptation of escape 
or relief, whatever it is, don't blame that on God. James says something of God's character here, that, that, that God cannot be tempted with evil, okay? Every one of us in this room has a price. I don't know what your price is, I just know you have one. Every one of us has a price, and yet there is nothing that you can put before God that would persuade him or lead him uh, to be tempted. Jesus models this for us in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, when uh, with three successive tests, Satan dangles in front of him something that was rightfully his. And yet, because his obsession is to do the Father's will, he quotes Deuteronomy and he refutes the enemy. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. The flip side of that coin then is if God cannot be tempted with evil, then he has nothing to do with evil and thus he cannot tempt anyone with evil. It is not a tactic. You see, when we uh, get in the midst of trial, the, the worst thing we can do is take a step away from God as though we doubt him, as though somehow this is from him. People often ask the question, if God is so good, why does evil exist in the world? It's a colossal misunderstanding of human depravity. We're the ones to blame for evil in the world, not God. God can't tempt with evil, neither does he use evil as a temptation because God is holy. Holiness means to be set apart. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way of understanding God as perfect. He is completely set apart from us. We can't even relate. Our minds don't understand the holiness of God. And the reason why God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden is because, precisely because he's, he is holy. And for unholiness to exist in his presence, because he's also just, that has to be dealt with. And so it's a move of grace when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. Why? Because he needs enough time to bring his son into the world to offer a perfect sacrifice for our sin. God is good, even though life is hard, even though evil exists. We can also choose the path of blaming God. And, it, and when we choose to blame God, it reveals a, a lack of self-awareness. It reveals that we don't understand uh, who we are. Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3 says, When a man's folly brings, uh, brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. We think that God should be... Uh, uh, at our beck and call, that in the midst of difficulty that he should just swoop to our rescue as though all that matters in the moment is the particular trial we're in. God is far more concerned about the big picture. He's concerned about the trajectory of our life. He's concerned about getting us here. And friends, you cannot get here apart from this path. Trials must do their work of leading us to trust him more, of leading to obedience, of granting us wisdom that produces endurance and endurance which matures us to make us look like Jesus, then and only then will we receive a crown of life. When we're confronted with the randomness of misfortune, we resort to one of four uh, conclusions. One, God does not exist. If he did, surely he would do something. Second, God is evil. That there's actually no goodness in God, that it's, he, it's just... Everything is evil, everything that is except for me. Number three, God is powerless to help. Number four, God does not care. All of those conclusions are, are uh, 
are far beneath the God of Scriptures, far beneath what is offered to you and I in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so that leads us to the second thought that James gives us, and that is this, that the root cause of our inability to reject temptation and giving into sin is us. The root cause of why a trial that could otherwise lead to the crown of life becomes a temptation that leads to death is because of you. Because of me. We are, left to our own devices, our own worst enemy. As you said here this morning, no one has done more to undermine your walk with Christ. No, more, no one has done more to undermine your marriage. No one has done more to wound your kids than you have. We have to look ourselves in the mirror, and this is what James has resolved to get us to, that the problem is not God. The problem is you and I. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. The word lured and enticed in the Greek is a fishing term. Uh, it means to bait. It means lust, selfish ambition, evil desire. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 12 says, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Friends, there is much at stake when trial strikes. You're going to choose which way to go. And what James says is that apart from God's help, you will make the wrong choice. Why? Because there exists in you a desire. A desire that you do not control. A desire that will drive you. What James wants us to understand is that when trial becomes testing, which leads to temptation, which leads to sin, when that happens, we alone are culpable. You alone. There's no one to wag your finger at. There's no one for me to blame. It's my fault because I am not set apart, because I am not like God. And yet the good news is that there is a way out of temptation. But the true source of our struggles is our desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then he says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, produces death. So Paul, or James says that desire can lead us to temptation. And temptation, unless we turn from it, will lead to the expression of lust and sin. And sin, if it's unchecked, will become a habit. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. And if this persists, it leads to death. Now we have a relationship with Christ that cannot be shaken. We cannot lose our adoption, so we have to deal with in just a moment what does James mean when he talks about death? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this process. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, killed uh, for his part in an assassination plot against Adolf Hitler. He writes these words, In our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce. Young people, take my word for it. It, it, it doesn't slowly progress it happens in an instant. You make a decision in an instant that can wreck the rest of your life. 
He says, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and, it is, and, it's, is, and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or an ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, a love of fame and power or greed for money. Or finally, that strange desire for the beauty of the world or nature. Can I read that again? I think he had Gunnison in mind. Or finally, that strange desire for the beauty of the world or nature. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. What satisfies me? What makes me happy? At this moment, God is quite unreal to you. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred for God, just with forgetfulness. Friends, when trial strikes, if you haven't disciplined yourself to walk with the Lord, if you haven't hidden his word in your heart that you might not sin against him, if it's just not like the default setting for you to run back to him the moment tragedy strikes, you will follow your own desires. This is why it's not enough for you to hear the word of God preached over you. This is why it's not enough for someone to speak truth into your life. It has to be in you. If in the moment of trial and temptation you instinctively think to yourself, I must run to my good father. He knows the way, and it will result in a crown of life. Outside of that, we are left to our own devices. And what James says is that when our, these two essential ingredients, when our desire couples with temptation, when that inward desire in us meets some outward stimulus, then it conceives. And yes, that term is talking about the conception of a child that leads uh, to delivery. When a woman gets pregnant... I remember when our first child, my wife was pregnant with our first child, uh, late, like really late. She was really, she was really large. And it was, we were in Springfield, Missouri, and it was extremely hot in the middle of summer. And she was just miserable. And I remember it dawning on me, like I'm not stupid, but I remember it actually striking me at a point, there's no way to turn this back. Like, <laughs> I would do anything to deliver her from, from what's fixing to happen. I'm terrified for her, but I can't, I can't do anything. I can't stop it. This is exactly what James is saying. When our response to trial is the inward drive to fulfill our desire, to find a way out, just to find a relief. It can be pornography. It could be alcohol. It could be drug use, whatever it is. The moment we choose to go the opposite direction of God and, and our desire meets temptation, it is conceived. And it will give birth to sin. Every one of us in this room who've been walking with Christ for a while, can, we, we have a master's degree in it. I can tell you time and time again how it's expressed itself in my life. There's simply no way to turn this back apart from turning to God. If you think you're in control, you're kidding yourself. If you think you can trust yourself, you're deceived. If you think that the goal of God is, to, is for you to somehow summon the courage in your flesh to pass the test, 
You will fail and fail and fail over and over again. Once conceived, it leads to death. King David is a brilliant example. King David is one of my heroes. In part, because he has a dark side. In part, because Scripture says of him, he was a man after God's own heart. King David, at a time when nations go off to war, Scripture says in Samuel, he stayed home. He was successful. He sent the army out. He should have been there, but he wasn't. And so he's walking on the uh, rooftop of his palace, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now, the first glance is not sin. That's just where desire wants to hook up with temptation and conceive sin. But he lingers. Instead of being in the place that he was supposed to be, instead of uh, immediately saying, this is, this is not what God has for me, I, I have a wife. Bathsheba is, is married to someone else, one of my own soldiers. Instead of turning back to God, he lets it run its course. And so first he inquires about her. And then he has her brought to the palace. And then he has sex with her and conceives a child. Once he finds out she's pregnant, then he rolls into this massive cover-up the likes of which Washington may not know. He summons to have his soldier, Uriah, brought back from, the, from war. And, and it's not that he wants to explain to Uriah how bad he feels about this. No, he brings Uriah back because he's hoping that Uriah will have the opportunity to sleep with his wife, and then he can blame the pregnancy on them. Uriah, a man of honor, won't even go to sleep with his wife. He won't even go home. He sleeps outside the king's palace. Because he feels that his job is to be on the front lines where David should have been with the men. So David writes a note, sends it back to the general in Uriah's hand. Uriah carries the note for his own execution. Put Uriah at the front of the battle and then back away from him. David not only commits adultery, he kills a man at his, at his behest. And then when God lowers the boom on him, he realizes... This process is real. It always works this way. In the end, not only did it cost Uriah's death physically, but it cost the birth of the child. It cost his death too. And, and, and so the question is, when, when James says it leads to death, what does he mean? What does he mean? We all have experienced sinning, and we haven't died yet. No, so, so it's not physical death that James is talking about. And it's not spiritual death, because God will not, uh, Jesus says, no man can pluck out of my hand those who God has placed in it. We are his, lock, stock, and barrel. He will complete the task, but what's at stake in the meantime is how well we grow in our relationship with Christ and this crown of life and the well done. So it's, it's not physical death and it's not spiritual death. Uh, what, what, what James is saying is, is kind of comes to us from a Jewish understanding about death. And so it's not so much for the, in the Jewish mindset, it's not so much about the destination, it's about the trajectory. It's about how you're living. The idea of death here is, is just the cessation of vitality. Some of you have some dead parts in your heart because you've played this cycle over and over again. Over and over again. Instead of one of these days choosing to go this way. This is the path that leads to life. The other alternative leads to death. Deuteronomy 30, 15, God says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death 
and evil, choose which way you will go. Proverbs 13, 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The pathway of life versus the pathway of death. This is what Jesus was saying in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. In the preceding breath, he said, but you have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. This is where Jesus is leading This is where the enemy would take you if you will walk with him, if you allow him to exploit who you are. We have an enemy who knows that we are prone to the pathway of death. Young people, you have an enemy. You scarcely understand him yet. In fact, I don't know that anyone here does. He was the highest of created beings. There is none like him underneath God. Even... uh, the archangel Michael would not dispute with Lucifer over the body of Moses, a righteous man. He just left it to God. We are no match for our spiritual adversary. He knows that we are prone to choose the path that leads to death every time because in us is desire that is not holy. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And every one of us can point to someone, at least someone, who's been devoured. Every one of us has witnessed this happen. I recently recently took up fly fishing. I thought about doing some practice cast across the crowd but I don't want to be judged. Some of, you, some of you are good fly fishermen. When I was studying this passage again, after having experienced fly fishing, I realized what a brilliant thing James is saying when he talks about this fishing term of being lured and enticed. Your fly fishing is not like other kinds of fishing I've done. You're not, drop, you're not dropping you know, something that is, you know, it's, it's obvious, I want to eat that. You're, you're, you're trying to deceive the fish. You're trying to trick them. And one of the things I've learned is that I have a lot left to learn, Perry, about, about flies, because there's a bunch of them. I, I, I know caddis. I'm, I'm, you have to figure out what is it that they're biting today? What is it that's tricking them today to strike at the hook? This is exactly what your enemy, the devil, is doing. You see, I, I don't know what fly you're biting, and he doesn't either, but he's going to keep on trying. He's going to keep on trying until you bite it. And the truth is, every one of us, if we follow our desires, will strike that hook. And James says, if you do that, if you're lured and enticed, then it will lead to temptation. And temptation will lead to sin. And if you continue down that path without repentance, it will lead to a habit. And you will suffer the loss or vitality of life. Lures are not often uh, obvious. Uh, Some of the lures I think we struggle with are these. I think oftentimes uh, we think of things as as seemingly harmless and innocent, little knowing where it will take us. This is why James says, or Peter says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Sometimes 
I think we bite the lure that says there's really no evil impulse in us. Friends, please, please don't lie to yourself that way. Another is that sin is not really sin. Our culture is, uh, works hard to not only set aside God, but to redefine. We're, we're to be an age of tolerance where everybody just gets to choose the way they want to go. It is not my job. It is not my job to pacify or redefine what our culture says is no longer sin. My job is to tell you the truth. And the truth is, I don't know what it is, but every one of you, every one of us in this room, has a sinful desire that if we follow, will lead us to death. So James says, rather abruptly, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The Greek, by the way, there uh, for brothers is adelphoi. It's the neuter gender. It means brothers and sisters. So ladies, you are included. Don't be deceived. Temptations tend to flourish on inconsistent and inaccurate thinking, which is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, uh, therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your body as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of worship. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. You see, left to our own devices, apart from God's intervention, apart from the renewing of our mind, we bite that hook every time. It's just who we are. It's what seems like it will gratify us next. We follow our desire. We need discernment. And as with wisdom, we talked about last week, we need wisdom to understand what God is doing. And so we pray in the same way. Here we need discernment. And it's available to us in prayer. We ask God to help us be discerning. And so we recognize that, that not everything, uh, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. But God has called us to recognize that not everything is expedient. So sometimes something may be otherwise good, but for you it's sin because of where it leads you. Alcohol is a great example. If alcohol leads you to be abusive, if alcohol makes you an angry person, if, if alcohol causes you to drop your responsibilities, then you should avoid it. You need discernment to recognize what alcohol is doing to you. And discernment is available to us if only we ask. And this leads us, number three, to the source of victory, which is God. James starts out by saying, don't think you can blame God. Don't think you can doubt God. Here's the truth about God. Chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you notice what James did there? He compared the Creator to astral occurrences. God is not like the sun that's revolving around. Sometimes things happen to us and we just think it's kind of like fate or the stars aren't lining up for me. James says God is in control of all things and all He gives is good and perfect gifts. He also says, verse 18, that salvation or rescuing us from this is all of God's doing. Friend, you cannot work your way to God. Anything you think you've done to justify yourself before God is a work and it is empty. It's void. The only thing that you and I can do is turn to Jesus Christ whose work alone is perfect on our account on the cross through His death 
burial, and resurrection. And by turning to him is saying exclusively, I am not relying on myself. I don't trust myself. I'm throwing myself at the feet of Christ because only he can atone for my sins. Only he can lead me back into relationship with the Father. Faith, a faith-filled trust, is the key to resisting temptation. So when trial strikes, if you would avoid temptation, run to God. Run to God and trust. Life uh, is the result of knowing God and experiencing the ongoing work of His saving us. Life, not, not death. Death is going our own way. Life is about knowing God and continually, faithfully walking in his exp the experience of Him redeeming us. Victory comes in dwelling on good. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, there's any, if there is any excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, think about these things. What happens is we spend too much of our time fantasizing about getting away about relief. James, Paul, Paul is saying in, in agreement with James, you ought to set your mind on good things. Good things come from the Father. Victory also comes through living the truth. David writes in Psalm 119.1, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Two questions there. Is there anything grievous in me? Is there anything grievous in me, church? Go ahead, you can say it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of grievous in me. But if I turn to God with it and I say, God, please lead me in the way of righteousness, he will be faithful to do it because he's a father who gives good and perfect gifts. Proverbs 14, 12. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. There is a way. You're sitting here now justifying your desire. Friends, if you continue down that path, God will prove himself right. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Conversely, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. Verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is a way that seems right to a man. Conversely, Jesus is saying, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him, but by Jesus. You go back to Jesus' temptation for a minute. We learn he kept his eyes on the Father. He knew the Word of God so that he could refute temptation. That's a key. He desired to live for the Lord. To follow Jesus is to learn an attitude of mind and heart that is sensitive to the will of God. This is the will of God, friends. 
This is nowhere. This is nowhere in God's blueprint for you. This is the will of God, to be sensitive to the will of God and His presence with me at all times. There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man, and God will make a way. Richard Foster says, remember, heaven is not the goal. It is the destination. The goal is that you would be formed in Christ. How does that happen? It's not by easy, living on easy street. There's too much of this bound up in you. It's got to get out somehow. So God's going to allow trials to do the work of leading you to a crown of life. Would you bow your head for a moment? I'll just ask a couple of questions. <clears throat> if you're here today and if you were to be completely transparent and say, you know, I don't know God. I don't know Him. I know about Him. I like the idea. That's why I came. But I don't know Him. Have you given your life to Christ? Friends, what I've drawn on this board, if you have not given your life to Christ, all that exists for you on this page is the bottom half. You are hopeless apart from Christ. That means your life will be nothing but a succession of following in your own desires, which leads to temptation, which leads to sin, which leads to habitual sin, and that will lead you to death. And it may not be physical or spiritual now, but it will be. The only hope for you and I is to turn to God and His work through Jesus Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to baptize two people. Their baptisms are a celebration of having come to Christ to recognize that there is something inside of them that needs to be fixed, and God is the fixer. And so they turned in faith to Jesus Christ, accepting His work on their behalf, trusting Him to be the Redeemer of the li their life and their leader. If you're a believer this morning, what are you in need of repentance of today? How long has it been since you repented? Friends, this process is at work every single day of our lives. None of us get to take a holiday. What is it that you're in need of repentance of? What do you need to ask God to give you wisdom for? What do you need to pray for discernment in? This morning, we're going to close as we transition to baptism with just a time for the altar to be open. I've asked a couple of people to be down front. And I would just invite you, if you've never established a relationship with Christ, there will be someone here who's willing to talk with you. If maybe you just need to pray for discernment or pray for discernment in the life of someone else or wisdom about something that's going on, maybe repentance. You can, of course, do it where you're at. But you're also invited to come to the steps here at the altar and speak to God. In both cases, whether it's the path that leads to the crown of life or the path that leads to death, prayer is available to us either for discernment or wisdom. So as Val plays, I'm just going to invite you to stand. And if you'd like to come forward, again, have several people come down just to be here.